Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. And by the Colchester Curry House, helping people make authentic Indian cuisine from the comfort of their home. Find authentic Indian spice blends and recipes at colchestercurryhouse.com. You're listening to episode 138 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the Mark of the Beast. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, be sure to stick around to the end of the episode. We've got some great feedback from you, the listeners, on our recent episode on The Great Reset. So be sure to listen for that at the end. But first, nearly 2,000 years ago, St. John saw the vision contained in the book of Revelation. One of the things he saw was a terrifying beast that rose out of the sea. It had seven heads and ten horns and gained its power from the devil. The beast number was 666, and that number has had sinister connotations ever since. Revelation describes people having to take the mark of the beast in order to buy and sell and avoid persecution. 2,000 years later, people are wondering about this mark and whether it's something we'll encounter in our own lifetimes. Is the mark a literal tattoo? Is it a computer chip? Is it a vaccine? Could it be the COVID vaccine? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, why did you want to do this episode? I've been meaning to do one about the Mark of the Beast for a long time, and lately I've been getting a lot of questions about the Mark of the Beast and whether it's connected with the COVID vaccine, either the medicine itself or a computer chip that might be implanted along with the vaccine. I've had these questions coming from some very frightened and sincere people. In fact, recently Catholic Answers and I got questions about it from three different people in a single day, and I wanted to be of what service I could to these people, and I realized one of the best things I could do would be to devote an episode of Mysterious World to the subject. And that would let us discuss the Mark of the Beast at length and really determine whether or not people have anything to worry about as the vaccines are rolled out. So you and I rearranged the schedule a bit so that we could get this episode into production and released as quickly as possible. But this episode isn't just going to be about the COVID vaccine. It's going to involve a serious look at what the Bible reveals concerning the Mark of the Beast. So regardless of when you're listening to it or what your views of the COVID vaccine may be, this will really be a a good deep dive into a biblical mystery that's fascinated people for 2000 years. How will we be proceeding in this topic? 
Normally on Mysterious World, we start by looking at the historical background of the mystery, then we look at the theories concerning it, and then we evaluate those theories from the perspectives of faith and reason. We'll do all those things in this episode, but in a different order. We'll start by looking at the theories concerning the mark of the beast, then we'll look at the historical background, what the Bible has to say about the mark, and afterwards we'll take that background information and then use it to evaluate the theories from the perspectives of faith and reason. Is there very much to say about this from the reason perspective if we'll be drawing on information from the Bible? Why wouldn't this all just be handled from the faith perspective? You don't have to be a Christian in order to understand most of what the Bible says. Uh, even atheists recognize what it means when the Gospels say that Jesus rose from the dead. They may not believe that he did, but they don't have any trouble understanding what the text means. In the same way, you don't have to believe that Revelation is a book of inspired prophecy to understand most of what it says. Even scholars from all faith perspectives, Christian and non-Christian, understand its basic message, and that's because its basic message message is accessible to reason. What you need in order to understand it is a grasp of logic, of how biblical literature works, and how the relevant biblical texts work. So most of what we need to do can actually be covered from the reason perspective. All right, then. So let's start with what theories are there about the mark of the beast? They fall into several basic categories. One thing we need to talk about is when in history the mark of the beast applies to. Is it something that applies to events in the first century or to events that are still in our future or to both? Also, since Revelation is a book of prophecy and prophecy uses symbols, we need to ask whether the mark of the beast is meant to be taken literally as a physical mark or whether it's a symbol of something else. We also need to ask about particular interpretations of the mark, like the idea it's a chip or a vaccine, and then we need to see how well those ideas correspond to what the Bible has to say. Finally, we need to look at certain matters from the faith perspective, including whether God would allow you to be tricked into taking the mark. All right, then let's start looking at the background of this mystery. Where should we begin? By understanding a few things about the book of Revelation itself, it's a book of prophecy that was written in the first century. It was written by a man named John, and he tells us his name right in the very first verse. In fact, here's how the book of Revelation starts. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So this is a revelation, that is, it reveals information to us that otherwise would be hidden. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ, meaning it comes to us from Jesus Christ. God gave it to Jesus, Jesus gave it to an angel, the angel gave it to John, and John gave it to his original audience, which he describes as the servants of God and of Jesus Christ. One of the most important things in this to notice is the purpose for which God gave it to Jesus, to show his servants what must soon take place. The importance of this is illustrated by the fact that at the end of the book, it stresses the same thing. In Revelation 22, the last chapter of the book, an angel tells John, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. 
that's a deliberate reference to what we're told in the first verse of the book. So both at the beginning and at the end of the book, we're told that the purpose of Revelation is to show God's servants what must soon take place. By bracketing the material in the book with this same statement at the beginning and the end, the book itself and John are really pounding this message home. And why is that important? Because it gives us a big clue about how the book should be interpreted. Today, there are three basic ways that Revelation is understood, and they have to do with the way the bulk of the material in the book relates to history. Everybody agrees that the beginning of the book relates to the first century. That's clear from the fact that John begins with messages to seven first century churches in the Roman province of Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey. Everybody also agrees that at the end of the book, it's dealing with events that are still in our future. That's clear from the fact that at the end of Revelation, we have descriptions of the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment, and the beginning of the eternal order. The question is, what about the material in the middle of the book, between chapters 4 and 20? How does that relate to history? And here's where the three main theories come in. The first theory, which is known as preterism, holds that the middle of Revelation relates to events early in Christian history, either the first century or the first few centuries. The second theory, known as idealism, holds that the middle of Revelation relates to all of church history, but not in a way that gives us a roadmap of specific events from the beginning to the end. Instead, it tells us about the kinds of things, like persecutions and triumphs, that will happen over and over again until Christ comes again. The third theory, known as futurism, holds that the middle of Revelation deals with events that are still in our future. How does the fact the beginning and end of Revelation stress that its events are to happen soon help us decide between these options? We always need to begin our interpretation of a biblical book or any document by asking what it would have meant to its original author and its original audience. After all, that's the purpose of an author, to communicate something to his audience. So what would a given statement the author makes have meant to the people he was writing for? Thus, what would soon have meant to John and his first century readers? It would not have meant 2,000 or more years later, you know, when we're living. It would have either meant the first century when they were living or the first few centuries at most. This means we should not begin by interpreting Revelation as primarily dealing with events that are still in our future 2,000 years later. It does deal with such events partially, like when it talks about the resurrection and the judgment of the dead, but the future is not what we should assume it's principally about. Isn't it possible to take soon in an unusual prophetic sense that does refer to our future? Yes, words sometimes do have unusual usages, but most of the time they don't. Most of the time, authors use words in their established meanings. If they didn't, if they were 
always using words in unusual senses, then their audience wouldn't know how to understand them. So we should stick with the established meaning of soon until we have evidence that John would be using it in a different sense. And that would mean we should begin our interpretation of the book of Revelation by looking at preterism, the view that at least most of the book deals with events early in church history, even if some of it's still in our future. Does that mean that the other two theories, idealism and futurism, are false and have nothing to teach us? This question really goes beyond the reason perspective and reaches into the faith perspective. But just to indicate where we're going to go in the end, no, it doesn't mean that. One of the things we see in the Bible is that prophecy can have more than one fulfillment. For example, in Isaiah 7, God has the prophet Isaiah go to the king of Judah, who at the time was a man named Ahaz. And Ahaz was afraid of what two rival kings might do to him. But God wanted to let Ahaz know that the two other kings would not defeat him and that he'd be okay. He thus had Isaiah offer him a sign to prove that God was serious about this and that he would keep Ahaz safe from the other two kings. But Ahaz got cold feet and wouldn't name a sign, so Isaiah told him, Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. So God was annoyed that Ahaz wouldn't name a sign, and he named one for him. A young woman would give birth to a son whose name, Emmanuel, means God with us, and that would indicate that God was with Ahaz and the nation of Judah. And while this child was still very young, before he knew how to distinguish between good and evil, the other two kings would be defeated. As a result, when the child was older, he would get to eat curds and honey, two really rich foods, because of the prosperity that Judah would have. For this to serve as a sign for King Ahaz, it would have had to have been a child born in his own day, roughly 730 years before Christ. And scholars have discussed which child in the 8th century BC might have been the child of prophecy. A leading suggestion is that the prophecy involves the birth of Ahaz's own son, the child who would eventually become his successor, King Hezekiah. Another suggestion is that it was the son of the prophet Isaiah. Whoever it was, the literal sense of this prophecy must refer to a child who was born in the 700s BC. But that didn't stop the prophecy from having an even greater fulfillment centuries later when Jesus Christ was born. He was God incarnate and thus God with us in an even greater sense. And Matthew points this out in the first chapter of his gospel. So just because a prophecy has one immediate fulfillment, that doesn't stop it from having later future fulfillments. As a result, even though preterism should be our starting point, for interpreting Revelation, that wouldn't stop idealism and futurism from also having validity. In addition to having its primary fulfillment early in church history, Revelation might have various fulfillments throughout church history, and again at the end of church history, just before the second coming. What does that mean for our examination of the mark of the beast? 
It means that we should try first to understand what the mark of the beast would have meant in a first century context. Then we should look at what it might mean later in church history, such as towards the second coming. Before we move on, I I wanted to ask something. It seems that both preterism and futurism have a question that they need to answer. If everyone agrees that the beginning of the book deals with the first century and that the end of the book deals with events in our future, how do the two views bridge the gap? How do they see Revelation as moving from one to the other? Basically, there needs to be a jump in time somewhere in the text. If futurism should be the primary interpretation, then there would need to be a point early in the book where we suddenly leap forward more than 2,000 years so that most of the events in the book can refer to events that are still in our future. If preterism is true, then the reverse is the case. Somewhere late in the book, there needs to be a big jump forward that allows most of the book to apply to events early in church history. And then we have this big jump and the last part of the book applies to events that are still in our future. And then what do we find when we read the text? Futurism encounters a problem. There is no point early in the book that indicates a big leap into the future. Such a passage is just not there. But preterism fares much better. Towards the end of the book, in chapter 20, we find a period known as the millennium, a term that means a thousand years. That's definitely a big jump. It allows most of the book, all of the events up to chapter 19, to deal with events early in church history. Then you have the big leap forward with the millennium in chapter 20. And finally, you have events that are still in our future in chapters 20 to 22. What about the fact that the number in Revelations 20 is a thousand, but church history has lasted more than a thousand years? Numbers in the Bible often have symbolic value. For example, in Psalm 50, God says to the Israelites, Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Obviously, this doesn't mean that there's a thousand and first hill where God doesn't own the cattle or that there are only a thousand hills in the world. A thousand is just being used as a symbolic number representing a very large amount. In fact, God owns the cattle on all of the hills, and there are way more than a thousand of those on earth. So given Revelation's emphasis on the fact that the bulk of the events it describes will happen soon, and given that we then find a very long period of time described symbolically as a thousand years near the end of the book— just before the end of the world, it fits very nicely with the preterist understanding of the book. The thousand years just symbolizes a long but indefinite period of time that covers most of church history. We thus should look toward the first century, or at least the first few centuries, when trying to understand the original fulfillment of the mark of the beast. Then, in light of what we learn, we may be able to figure out what a future fulfillment might be like if there is a future fulfillment. Let's look at what Revelation has to say about the mark itself. When do we first encounter it? In Revelation chapter 13, in this chapter, John sees a great beast rising out of the sea, and he writes, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. 
This symbolism is drawn from the book of Daniel. In Daniel 7, the prophet sees a series of pagan empires that persecute God's people, and they're each depicted as a beast that rises out of the sea. The first was like a lion, the second was like a bear, the third was like a leopard, and the fourth had ten horns. From Daniel, we learn that these persecuting empires included the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, and the Greeks. In Revelation, the fact that the beast emerges from the sea and combines elements of all four of Daniel's beasts suggests it's the same thing, or same kind of thing, a pagan empire that persecutes God's people. And in a first century context, that would be the Roman Empire. John continues, And to the beast the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Later, in Revelation 17.10, we're told that the heads of the beast represent seven kings, five of whom had fallen when John was writing the book, one of whom was reigning, and one who would come but reign only a short time. This suggests the line of first century Roman emperors. The five fallen heads would represent the first five emperors, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. The sixth head would represent the emperor who was reigning when John wrote the book, Galba. And the seventh head would represent the next emperor who would reign only a short time, Otho. And Otho, indeed, only reigned for three months. The fact one of the heads seemed to be mortally wounded but came back to life also fits. Caligula was killed, but Nero turned out to be a tyrant very much like Caligula. And after Nero was killed, some of his successors, especially Otho, styled themselves as a new Nero. Otho even called himself Otho Nero. We're also told in Revelation 17.9 that the seven heads represent seven mountains, suggesting the seven hills of Rome that are so famous. Back to John. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? This reflects the might of the Roman Empire, which nobody could successfully fight against in the first century. And it represents the fact that the Roman emperor was frequently worshipped as a god, even during his lifetime. Also, the beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So the beast persecutes God's people, the saints, and when Revelation was being written, Rome was both waging a literal war against the Jewish people in Palestine and conducting persecutions against Christians in Rome. The Roman Empire did indeed have authority over every tribe and people and language and nation in the Greco-Roman world, and people did worship the emperor as part of the imperial cult, except for the Christians and Jews who refused to do so. John then sees a second beast that rises out of the earth, and it has two horns like a lamb, but speaks like a dragon. It compels people to worship the first beast. It causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, 
so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. So this second beast would represent, also referred to later in Revelation as the false prophet, would represent people that encourage the cult of emperor worship. And here is where we have the first mention of the mark of the beast. It's something that people receive either on their right hand or their forehead. You can't do commerce unless you have the mark. And the mark itself consists of the name of the beast, or rather, its name converted into a number. This reflects an ancient practice known as gematria. Basically, languages like Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek didn't have written symbols for numbers, so they gave each letter of the alphabet a numerical value. You know, alpha is one, beta is two, gamma is three, and so on. Thus, you could take a word or phrase any word or phrase, and add up the values of the individual letters it contained to come up with an overall number. My favorite example of this from the ancient world outside of the Bible is from a surviving piece of graffiti we have that says, I love her whose number is 545. (laughs) And it's not her telephone number, but it's like someone out there is like, oh, I've got a secret admirer. In any event, now John wants his first century readers to do gematria to figure out the name of the beast. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man and his number is 666. John thus tells us that the number is 666 and that it's the number of a man. So we should look for a man's name that adds up to 666. Since he expects his audience in the first century to be able to figure it out, I mean, he says it calls for wisdom. So those of you who are in the audience and are wise, you can do this. The beast must be identified with a man who was alive in the first century. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to figure it out. It also suggests that he's a famous man, because if he was some nobody from nowhere, people wouldn't be able to figure it out. So were there any famous men in the first century who were connected with the Roman Empire that persecuted Christians and Jews and who wanted to be worshipped and who were part of the line of the first seven Roman emperors or kings and who had a name that happened to add up to 666. And I'm going to guess you're going to tell us that there was. And you'd be right. (laughs) That individual was the emperor Nero, who reigned between AD 54 and 68. He was a Roman emperor. He wanted people to worship him as a god. He persecuted Jews during the Jewish War of the AD 60s, and he persecuted Christians after the Great Fire of Rome in 64. He martyred St. Peter, and St. Paul was martyred by his officials, and his name adds up to 666. In Hebrew and Aramaic, Nero Caesar would be spelled Neron Kassar, N-R-W-N-Q-S-R. Hebrew and Aramaic had no vowels at this time, but each of the consonants had a value. N had the value of 50. R had the value of 200. W had the value of 6. And the second N in Neron also had a value of 50. Q had a value of 100. S had a value of 60, and the second R in Kassar would have had a value of 200 again. So total up those consonants, and they give 
666. But there's another way to spell Nero's name in Hebrew and Aramaic, and that leaves off the second N in Neron, meaning that the name would just be N-R-W-Q-S-R. Since N has a value of 50, leaving off the second N would reduce the value of the name from 666 to 616. And guess what? We have early biblical manuscripts, a number of them, where the number of the beast's name is 616 rather than 666. Furthermore, we have early awareness of this among the church fathers. Around AD 189, in his famous work Against Heresies, the early church father Irenaeus of Lyon says that he knows about both the 666 reading and the 616 reading. So it comes from very early, either in the second century or perhaps even the first. As a result, it's widely recognized by scholars that the Mark of the Beast is a reference to Nero Caesar. But there's even more, and this has to do with a Greek practice known as isopsophy. Okay, so what is isopsophy? It's a Greek practice that involves counting the numerical values of letters, but it's different than the gematria procedure we've been discussing. It's based on gematria. As we said, just totaling up the numbers of a word or phrase is what gematria involves, and using Hebrew or Aramaic gematria, Nero Caesar adds up to 666. But the Greeks had a second practice called isopsophy that took this one step further. Not only did you add up the numbers in one word or phrase, you also added up the numbers in a second word or phrase that had an equivalent value. That's what the term isopsophy means, that two things have equal numerical values. Can you give us an example of this? Not only can I give you an example, I can give you an example involving Nero himself. One of the things that Nero was most famous for in the ancient world was being a matricide. That is, he arranged for the death of his own mother, Agrippina the Younger. When you read the ancient sources about Nero, that gets mentioned constantly because it was so horrific. Now, we've mentioned that when you take the name Nero Caesar and add it up using Hebrew or Aramaic numbers, you get 666. But if you use the values of Greek letters, you get a different number. Specifically, the name Nero, just Nero by itself, adds up to 1,005. Knowing this, ancient Greek speakers were delighted when they discovered that the phrase meaning killed his own mother also adds up to 1,005. So Nero and killed his own mother had the same numerical value, and Greek speakers thought that was particularly significant and appropriate. I mean, Nero is such an evil matricide that even his own name totaled up to mean killed his own mother. The Roman historian Suetonius even notes the popularity of this identification in his biography of Nero in the Lives of the Twelve Caesars. You can look at section 39 of his biography of Nero for that. So what does isopsophy have to do with Nero in the number 666? In Revelation, John wants us to calculate the number of the beast, which he says is 666, and that it's the number of a man. But what about the word beast itself? In Greek, 
the word he uses for beast is therion. And if you use the Hebrew Aramaic values for the letters in therion, you once again get the number 666. So not only does the name Nero Caesar add up to 666, the word beast adds up to 666 using the same system of calculation. We thus have an isopsophy equating Nero with the beast. As the British scholar Richard Balcom points out in his excellent book, The Climax of Prophecy, Thus John is saying that the number of the word beast, Therion, is also the number of a man, Nero Caesar. The gematria does not merely assert that Nero is the beast, it demonstrates that he is. Nero's very name identifies him by its numerical value as the apocalyptic beast. And Baucom goes on to discuss even more fascinating things about Nero's relationship to the beast and the numbers 666, but these will do for our purposes. I'll also note that it isn't just Revelation that calls Nero a beast. He's also referred to that way in other ancient literature, such as the Sibylline Oracles, which were a collection of ancient prophecies, so people other than John understood Nero as a beast. Is there more information in Revelation about the Mark of the Beast that we should be aware of? The Mark of the Beast is mentioned a few more times in the book, but no additional information is given to us about the Mark itself. However, we do need to know about something in Revelation that functions as a parallel to the Mark of the Beast. In Revelation 7, we read about a situation where God is getting ready to unleash a series of judgments, but first he has an angel go and put a mark on his followers, a group known as the 144,000. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, there are different interpretations of who the 144,000 are, and I don't have a settled view of the matter. It's possible that, in keeping with another passage in Revelation, they are righteous Jewish men. However, it's also possible that they represent the Christian church as a whole. This is partly because of the symbolic number 144,000, which is 12 times 12,000. And because they are described as the servants of God, that also could suggest all Christians. And because immediately after hearing about the 144,000, John sees this. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. This clearly refers to the Christian church as a whole because of all the tribes and, la and languages and nations, and the fact they're worshiping the Lamb. And this may be John's way of communicating to us that this is the same group as the 144,000. They're drawn from the 12 tribes of all of spiritual Israel. You know, the church being a spiritual Israel, as Paul talks about in Romans, you're a Jew if you're one inwardly. It doesn't really matter if you're circumcised or not. 
For our purposes, it's important to note that the 144,000, or the servants of God, have the seal of God placed on their foreheads as a sign of divine protection, so they, the angels won't hurt them with the judgments that are about to be released. Later, in Revelation 14, we read, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Here, the seal of God is represented as the name of Jesus and his father. And that's like the, the number of the beast, which was the name, John tells us, of the man who is the beast. Now, this is something we really need to understand in its context. There's a relationship between the mark of the beast and the seal of the lamb. And it's unfortunate because the chapter breaks make this hard to see. But we read about the mark of the beast on people's right hands or foreheads at the end of chapter 13. Then the very next thing that John sees at the beginning of chapter 14 is the 144,000 with God's seal on their foreheads. The text is deliberately contrasting the mark of the beast and the seal of God by putting the two things right next to each other. It's only the artificial chapter break that was added centuries later that keeps people from recognizing this. So let's listen to what you'd hear if you were a first century Christian listening to the book of Revelation being read in church without the chapter divisions. It causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So you can hear how the text directly juxtaposes the mark of the beast and the seal of God. Also, we need to be aware of the fact that this symbolism doesn't come out of nowhere. There is Old Testament background for this, like most things in Revelation. In Ezekiel 9, verses 4 to 6, God is, again, preparing to pass through Jerusalem and execute judgment on the idolaters who live there. But first, he tells an angel to put a mark on the foreheads of all the righteous people in Jerusalem. Ezekiel writes, And the Lord said to the angel, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others he said in my hearing, Pass through the city after him, and strike. Your eye shall not spare, and you shall show no pity, but touch no one on whom is the mark. God protects his people by having one angel mark their foreheads so that the other angels will know not to harm them. That's the same thing we see happening in Revelation with the followers of the Lamb. God also marks them to indicate that they belong to him and so will be protected during the judgments that are about to be unleashed. It's not obvious in the English translation, but the Hebrew word rendered mark in Ezekiel is the word tau. Tau is the last letter 
of the Hebrew alphabet. And in the Paleo-Hebrew script, the one that was in use back in Ezekiel's day, the letter Tau was written as two crossed marks, like our letter X. Because this is a very simple mark to make, Tau also came to be used as a term for the word mark. And after the Christian age began, Christians couldn't help noticing that in this passage in Ezekiel, God was having his people marked on their foreheads with two crossed lines, the sign of the cross. That's the background to what we're reading in Revelation 7 and 14, where the followers of Jesus are being marked on their foreheads to protect them. But in addition to being marked for protection, you also could be marked for destruction. We see that in a Jewish work from the first century BC known as the Psalms of Solomon. Now, this book isn't part of the Bible, but it does show how Jews of this period were understanding the symbols of spiritual marks and how they could signify either protection or destruction. In the Psalms of Solomon 15, verses 6 to 9, we read, For God's mark is on the righteous for their salvation. Famine and sword and death shall be far from the righteous, for they will retreat from the devout like those pursued by famine. But they shall pursue sinners and overtake them, for those who act lawlessly shall not escape the Lord's judgment. They shall be overtaken as by those experienced in war, for on their forehead is the mark of destruction. So the righteous are marked for protection, while the wicked are marked on the forehead for destruction. That's essentially what we see happening in Revelation. Those marked on their forehead with the sign of the cross or the name of the Lamb and of God will be protected, while those marked on their foreheads or their right hands with the mark of the beast belong to the devil and will be destroyed. And with that we're ready to start evaluating the options concerning what the mark of the beast may be. And before we get to that, let's take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Christian A., Peter S., Elliot J., Veland F., and Maria D. Their generous donations at sqpn.com give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. Now is a great time to become a StarQuest patron. Thanks to a generous gift from a StarQuest supporter, when you start a new Patreon monthly pledge at sqpn.com give, the first three months will be matched by an equal amount from our donor. So if you become a new patron at $10 a month, after three months, our donor will give $30 to StarQuest to support all our shows, including this one, making your gift go even further. If you've been thinking of becoming a StarQuest patron, now is the time. Visit sqpn.com slash give today. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. And by Colchester Curry House, helping people make authentic Indian cuisine from the comfort of their own home. Find authentic Indian spice blends and recipes at colchestercurryhouse.com. So, Jimmy, what can we say about the Mark of the Beast from the reason perspective? 
since it appears that the book of Revelation had its primary fulfillment in the first century or the first few centuries, we should ask what the mark would have meant back then, and in light of that, we can ask what it might mean in the future. A basic question we need to ask is whether the mark should be taken literally or whether it's a symbol. If it's to be taken literally, then it would be the number 666, which gets physically written on people's right hands or foreheads somehow. It could be simply written in ink, though that's unlikely since ink washes off. More likely, it would be tattooed or branded onto the skin, as these were the ways that people in the first century would have available to them to get 666 permanently onto someone's hand or forehead. However, we don't have evidence of that happening early in church history. There wasn't a movement to literally put 666 on these locations on people's bodies. That would suggest that the mark may be a symbol rather than a literal physical mark. Is there evidence you could cite from the Bible itself that would suggest this? Yes, it's not unexpected that the mark would be a symbol since Revelation is a book that's full of symbols, including symbols connected with the beast. The beast isn't literally a sea monster, a monstrous animal that comes up out of the Mediterranean Sea like a Greco-Roman Godzilla. The beast itself is a symbol. It represents a pagan empire that persecutes God's people, namely the Roman Empire. And in chapter 17 of the book, we're told that its seven heads represent seven kings and seven mountains, so they're symbols. And we're told that its horns represent kings or leaders. So there's lots of symbolism connected to the beast, and we shouldn't be surprised if its mark is a symbol also. That's very strongly suggested by its parallel, the seal of God that's on the foreheads of the servants of God. In chapter 17, angels are marking God's servants with the seal, but they aren't literally tattooing it or branding it on people physically. It's not a physical mark. It's an invisible spiritual seal that God and his angels can see. It's just like the cross or tau that the angels put on the foreheads of the righteous in Ezekiel. That also was an invisible spiritual mark. And it's the same with the mark of salvation and the mark of destruction that we read about being on the foreheads of the righteous and the wicked in the Psalms of Solomon. The consistent theme with all of these identifying forehead marks is that they're invisible spiritual marks. And that would suggest that the mark of the beast is the same kind of thing. In that case, what would it symbolize? Well, the seal of God, which we're told is the name of Jesus and his father, signifies that you belong to God, and so you're going to be protected. It represents the fact that you belong to God and you worship him. So the mark of the beast would signify the reverse. The mark would represent the fact that you worship the beast, and so that's who you belong to. In the first century context, when the book had its primary fulfillment, that would mean that you participate in the cult of Roman emperor worship. And so your primary loyalty is to the Roman emperor, not to God. What could it mean that you could have the mark either on your right hand or your forehead? 
The fact that it goes on your forehead is consistent with the way the seal of God is used, uh, as that's also placed on the forehead in Revelation and Ezekiel. It's also consistent with the fact that apparently in the ancient world, some slaves received a mark of ownership on their foreheads and some devotees of particular gods marked themselves on their foreheads. So this would represent the fact that you're a devotee of the beast and that you belong to him and that you participate in Roman emperor worship. The more interesting thing is that you could also have the mark on your hand. Since the hand is what we use to get work done, it could signify that you not only have your head in the service of the beast, but also your labor in the service of the beast. In other words, you put your hand to actively supporting the evil that the Roman Empire was doing, especially emperor worship. However, there's another reason that the hand could be involved, and that has to do with the fact that without the mark, you couldn't buy or sell. How would that work? Well, for a start, participating in emperor worship had economic advantages. For example, trade guilds often had religious rights that the members would participate in. You know, like if we're in a trade guild of, I don't know, candle makers, we all might worship the goddess Artemis together or something like that. One of the things that reinforces our guild membership. And those trade guild religious services could include emperor worship. Also, at times in the early church, people were required to sacrifice to the emperor in order to lead normal lives, even if you weren't in a trade guild. And since Christians wouldn't do that, they were persecuted. However, the mark of the beast on the hand could be connected with commerce in another way. You see, in the Roman Empire, coins frequently had an image of the current emperor. Furthermore, the emperor was often depicted as a god on these coins, and they contained references to the emperor's divinity. So if these were the only coins you had available, you literally couldn't buy or sell without touching coins that had been tainted by emperor worship. And that could be why the mark could also be associated with people's right hands in addition to their foreheads. In any event, the evidence points to the mark's initial fulfillment not being a literal physical tattoo on people's hands or foreheads, but a symbol representing the spiritual reality that they were participating in one way or another with the Roman cult of emperor worship. And was that something just confined to the first century? No, emperor worship went on for centuries. As the Anchor Bible Commentary on Revelation notes, in the reign of Decius, Roman Emperor, A.D. 249-51, any man who did not possess the certificate of sacrifice to Caesar could not pursue ordinary trades, but faced imprisonment, death, or banishment. So even around A.D. 250, you still had to sacrifice to the emperor if you wanted to pursue a trade and not be thrown in prison or be killed or be banished. What about the Mark of the Beast and the future? Could there be a fulfillment that's still to come? Absolutely. One of the things we find when we study the Bible is that prophecy often has more than one fulfillment, like the Emmanuel prophecy that Isaiah gave to King Ahaz. Its original fulfillment was a child born more than 700 years before Christ, but it had a later, greater fulfillment in Jesus. So it's entirely possible that there will be a future Mark of the Beast as well. And what form might it take? 
We can't know for sure. Later fulfillments don't have to match up to their originals in every detail. Uh, Jesus, for example, was not exactly the same as the child born in King Ahaz's day. And what about some of the interpretations that have been offered by authors of popular books and prophecy? Like people who have tried setting dates for the second coming, these authors have a really bad track record. So far, all of the proposals have proved false. For example, when Social Security numbers were introduced back in 1935 as part of President Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal legislation, a lot of people said, oh no, giving people identification numbers, that's clearly the mark of the beast. They could even point to the fact that if you were an American, you were required to get a Social Security number in order to have a job and thus buy and sell. But this didn't fit the prophecy because the number had nothing to do, the Social Security number had nothing to do with the number 666. Everyone needs a different Social Security number for the system to work, and nobody has the number 666. Also, your Social Security number isn't tattooed on your right hand or your forehead, so that doesn't fit the prophecy. And today, nobody takes the idea seriously that if you have a Social Security number, you've received the mark of the beast. Then, in the 1950s, when general purpose credit cards were becoming popular, the same thing happened. People said, oh no, credit cards have numbers on them. They're the mark of the beast. You can even carry them in your right hand. Yeah, but you don't have to use them in order to do commerce. You could still use cash. And the credit card numbers aren't literally tattooed on your hand or forehead, and they have nothing to do with the number 666. Again, the whole point of having a credit card number is that everybody has a different number. So, as before, nobody takes the idea that credit cards are the mark of the beast seriously anymore. What about computers? Haven't there been efforts to link the Mark of the Beast to computers? Indeed. I remember back in the 1970s that there were rumors of a supercomputer in Belgium called The Beast. As anthropologist Alexander Panchenko writes in his article, The Beast Computer in Brussels. In the late 1970s, Christian prophecy writers in the United States started repeating a rumor that a giant supercomputer is being created in Brussels for the purpose of taking over the world's banking system and creating a cashless economic system, as was prophesied in Revelation. Its particular sources can be debated, but it seems that the canonic version of the story was invented in 1975 by a certain person from the Southwest Radio Church, a non-denominational evangelical radio broadcast program in Oklahoma City. And let me just mention that after I became a Christian in the 1980s, I would sometimes hear the Southwest Radio Church broadcasts because I was living in the Ozark Mountains in Arkansas, just across the border from Oklahoma. So that's a bit of nostalgia for me. Penchenko continues, The most likely authors of the story were pastors David Weber and Noah Hutchings, who later on published a special book titled Computers and the Beast of Revelation. In 1975, the Southwest Radio Church reported that this supercomputer, dubbed the Beast, would link banks throughout the world and gradually force a socialistic economic leveling and a new money system in the 1980s. In the same year, Colin Deal, a prophecy writer especially known for his bestseller, Will Christ Return by 1988, 101 Reasons Why, informed his readers that, Common market leaders during a crisis meeting in Brussels, Belgium, 
we're introduced to the Beast, a gigantic computer that occupies three floors of the administration building at the Common Market headquarters. The computer is capable of assigning a number to every person on Earth in the form of a laser tattoo. Then, through infrared scanners, this invisible tattoo would appear on a screen. Needless to say, our lives and economies are not being run by such a computer. We have not been given infrared laser tattoos on our hands or foreheads, and we don't need to use them when we check out at the grocery store. What about other, more recent proposals, like the idea that the Mark of the Beast might involve barcodes? We've had barcodes for a long time, and so far, they haven't turned out to be the Mark of the Beast. As with social security numbers and credit cards, the point of barcodes is having a different code for everything. Barcodes are used for inventory tracking, and just imagine what would happen if every item in the supermarket had a barcode that read 666. When you wanted to check out, the scanner wouldn't know whether to charge you for a magazine or a pack of gum or a carton of milk or a box of cereal. They'd all have the same barcode, 666. And, of course, we don't have barcodes literally tattooed on our hands or foreheads. What about microchips and specifically RFID chips? RFID stands for Radio Frequency Identification, and RFID chips either actively or passively use radio frequencies to communicate with information systems. They are often used for tracking and inventory control, like if you walk out of a store without paying for something, the scanner at the door may set off an alarm because the item that you've just shoplifted hasn't been checked out of inventory. They also can be used to store information, which has led to them being used implanted in animals. That way, if someone finds your lost pet, they can scan it and find out its name and who owns it so they can return it to you. They also can store medical information, like what health conditions and allergies a person has, so some have been implanted in humans in case a person is knocked out and can't speak for himself. They also can be used for things like storing your credit card information or giving you access to secure areas like a hotel key card. So far, there have been small-scale, largely experimental applications of RFID chip implants on human beings, but there are safety concerns about them, and they haven't really taken off. Could such chips have a role in a future fulfillment of the Mark of the Beast? I can't rule it out in principle, but it's not a natural fit. As with Social Security numbers, credit cards, and barcodes, the whole point of an RFID chip is that they don't all contain the same information. They contain information that is customized to a specific individual. As a result, they wouldn't all just have the number 666. So merely having an RFID chip implant wouldn't be enough to count as the mark of the beast any more than having a Social Security card or a credit card. What would it take for such chips to play a role in a future fulfillment? They'd need to perform the same basic function as the Mark of the Beast did in the first century. There would need to be a future Antichrist figure who was a world leader like Nero that was claiming to be a god. And by receiving the chip implant, you would be saying that you're willing to worship the emperor as a god. I can't rule out a scenario like that happening at some point in the future, but unless and until one does, you don't need to worry about RFID chips being the mark of the beast. It wouldn't be just 
any chip. It would be one specifically associated with worshiping a future world leader. Last year, there were reports that people were going to be injected with RFID chips as part of the COVID vaccine distribution. Is there any truth to that? No, the rumor was based on a misunderstanding. A company named Apoject received a government loan to produce pre-filled syringes of the COVID vaccine, and the manufacturer indicated that if the government wanted, these syringes could have RFID chips to help them do inventory tracking of the syringes. But the chips would be on the outside of the injectors and would not be injected into human beings. In fact, RFID chips are too big to go through a standard vaccine needle. People on social media then took press reports about Apoject and combined it with misleadingly edited video of people like Bill Gates to make it sound really sinister. We'll have a link to where you can read about this. But it's simply false that people would be injected with RFID chips as part of the COVID vaccination program. And what about the vaccine itself? Some have worried that the substance itself is the mark of the beast. Interestingly, this is not the first time that people have feared a vaccine might be the mark of the beast. In Europe and America, vaccines and a related process known as variolation started to become widespread in the 18th century. And anthropologist Alexander Panchenko reports that Russian 19th century peasants refused vaccination, considering it to be marks of the Antichrist. However, that was nonsense. A vaccination mark is not a mark of the Antichrist. And the idea that the COVID vaccine, as opposed to any other vaccine, is the mark of the beast similarly makes no sense. First, the vaccine has nothing to do with a Roman emperor-like world leader who wants to be worshipped as a god. Second, it's a fluid, not a tattoo or a brand. Third, it has nothing to do with the number 666. And then let me ask you this, Dom. When was the last time you went to a doctor to get a shot and they took the syringe and jammed it into your hand? Uh, never. <laughs> right, because your hand has lots of bones and blood vessels and tendons in it and nerves and no big muscles. That's why the hand is not a regular injection site. There's a lot of stuff to mess up there or that would ruin the needle if it hit a bone. Now, let me ask you another question. When was the last time you went to the doctor to get a shot and they took the syringe and jammed it into your forehead? <laughs> Never. Absolutely right. You'd break the needle and hurt the patient if you tried vaccinating someone in the forehead. So the COVID vaccine isn't connected to worshiping a Roman emperor-like figure. It isn't a tattoo or a brand. It isn't the number 666. And it won't be administered in the hand or the forehead. It's an exceptionally poor proposal for what the mark of the beast might be. Okay, what can we say about the Mark of the Beast from the faith perspective? If there is a future fulfillment of the Mark of the Beast, what can we say about it with confidence? Any such fulfillment would be modeled on the one that occurred in the first century. John told his readers that if they were wise, they could, could and should calculate the number of the beast. 
that means that the number could be calculated in the first century, and the obvious reference is to Nero and the cult of emperor worship. Therefore, any future fulfillment should involve parallel elements. It will involve worshiping a major political leader as a deity. Did the church fathers agree with this assessment? Yes, we don't have a lot of early commentaries on this specific passage of Revelation, but around A.D. 233, the early church father Hippolytus wrote this in his treatise on the Antichrist. Being full of guile and exalting himself against the servants of God with the wish to afflict them and persecute them out of the world because they do not give glory to him, the Antichrist will order incense pans to be set up by all everywhere that no one among the saints may be able to, to buy or sell without first sacrificing. This is what is meant by the mark received upon the right hand. So he understands that the mark of the beast on the hand is not a literal physical mark, but a willingness to use your hand to sacrifice to the Antichrist by pitching some incense into one of the incense pans. Here's what he says about the mark going on the forehead. And the words on the forehead indicate that all are crowned and put on a crown of fire, and not of life, but of death. For in this way, too, did Antiochus Epiphanes, the king of Syria, the descendant of Alexandria of Macedon, devise measures against the Jews. He, too, in the exaltation of his heart, issued a decree in those times that all should set up shrines before their doors and sacrifice and that they should march in procession to the honor of Dionysius, waving chaplets of ivy, and that those who refused obedience should be put to death by strangulation and torture. So for Hippolytus, the mark on the forehead is a symbol of a crown of fire that's placed upon the heads of those who engage in pagan worship of the Antichrist. In both cases, this reflects an understanding of the mark not as a literal physical symbol, but as representing complicity in worshiping a political leader as a deity. This has important implications for the future. It means that we will not be able to be tricked into receiving the mark of the beast. God loves his people and will not allow them to be tricked. If there is a future fulfillment of the mark, it will be obvious what it is by the fact that it means worshiping a major political leader as a god. And if it's obvious to us, it'll be obvious to the church's leaders. Therefore, if the bishops and the pope are not sounding the alarm, you don't have to worry. The mark of the beast will be obvious to Christians, and especially to the pastors of the church who have special guidance from the Holy Spirit. So if they aren't identifying something as the mark of the beast, you shouldn't worry. In particular, you shouldn't worry about the COVID vaccines being the mark of the beast because the Holy See has already looked at the COVID vaccines and applied the standard established principles of Catholic moral theology to them, and concluded that it's legitimate for Catholics to use them with certain qualifiers. We'll have a link to where you can read the Holy See's document for yourself. So trust the church and trust common sense. Both the faith and reason perspectives tell us that COVID vaccines are not the mark of the beast. Jimmy, what's your bottom line on the mark of the beast? In Revelation 13, John tells his first century readers that if they had wisdom, they could 
and should calculate the number of the beast. That means the beast existed and was well known in the first century, so his number could be calculated. As we saw, multiple lines of evidence indicate that the number 666 represented the Roman Emperor Nero and other Roman emperors connected with him in emperor worship, and that the beast represented the line of Roman emperors and the Roman Empire more generally. That means, in its primary fulfillment, the mark of the beast represented a willingness to engage in the practice of emperor worship. It wasn't a literal, physical mark, but a symbol of a spiritual reality, just like the seal of God that was placed on the foreheads of God's servants in Ezekiel and Revelation. It's possible that there will be a second fulfillment of the mark of the beast in our future. However, if so, it may mean exactly the same thing it did the first time around, merely a willingness to worship a major political leader who is a future equivalent of Nero. In that case, it might not have any literal physical mark that's put on people's hands or foreheads, just like it didn't the first time around. However, if it does, it needs to correspond to the biblical data concerning the mark. We can't simply speculate wildly based on vague hints and similarities. God loves his people and won't let them be tricked into taking such a mark. It will be obvious. You won't have to wonder about it. People who take the mark will know that they're worshiping a political leader. Consequently, all of the recent proposals are wrong. The mark of the beast is not social security numbers or credit cards or barcodes or any current RFID chip program or the COVID vaccine. None of these are supported by the biblical evidence. So relax and trust God. If there is a future fulfillment for the mark of the beast, then whatever it may be, it isn't here yet. Jimmy, what further resources would you like to offer to the listeners on this topic? We'll have a link to where you can get Suetonius's book, The Lives of the Twelve Caesars, so you can read about Nero from a Roman historian's perspective. Also, Richard Baucom's outstanding book, The Climax of Prophecy. We'll have a link to an article on isopsophy and Alexander Penchenko's article, The Beast Computer in Brussels. Also, articles on RFID microchips human microchip implants, and a fact check on the COVID vaccine and RFID chip. So you can see how the rumors that, oh, you're going to get a RFID in you if you take this vaccine, how those got started and how the evidence was distorted. And then finally, we'll have a link to the Vatican statement from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith on the COVID vaccine. So you can see what the Catholic Church actually teaches about these vaccines. Excellent. Thank you. Let's move on to our promised mysterious feedback, which I said earlier was going to be on our recent episode on the Great Reset. Our first feedback is a tweet from Bishop Scott McKegg of the Canadian Military Diocese, who wrote, The Great Reset. What is it really? Be informed. And then he links to our show. Yeah, and I really want to thank Bishop McCaig for linking us. I appreciate that you liked the approach that we took on that and wanted to share it with your Twitter followers. There, It's one of a number of really nice comments I've had from uh, various churchmen, and I appreciate it. Then Ted wrote on Facebook, Ah, Davos, not Davros. I first thought that the Daleks were involved in the Great Reset. 
Yeah, we have a different podcast uh, for that. You might want to check out Secrets of Doctor Who. That's right. Uh, Jason wrote on Facebook, unlike so many other commentators, you actually look at all sides of the issues. Great episode. Thank you. I really tried to be fair and give everybody's perspective a good shot, but then analyze it in light of the evidence. And so as with the World Economic Forum, there are people like others, you know, they're not going to be all good or all bad, but there are some reasons for concern there. Jamie or Jaime on Facebook writes, fantastic and informative episode as always. Looking forward to joining the World Economic Forum to further their diverse stakeholder representation, or maybe not. Yeah, maybe not. I uh, <laughs> I don't know how anxious they are to have us ordinary peons participating in their high council meetings. Uh, it depends on your stock portfolio, I guess. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a great bit in Gilbert and Sullivan's operetta Iolanthe where you have a group of fairies confronting a group of British lords or peers. So the play is called The Peer and the Peery, Peery being another word for fairy. Mm -hmm. And the lords are very arrogant, and they're talking about our, uh, our uh, what's the initial line? It's, um, you shall not quench our lordly style with base canile. And the fairies <laughs> go, that word is French. Distinction ebbs before a herd of vulgar plebs. A Latin word. T'would fill with joy and madness stark the hoi polloi. A Greek remark. One Latin word, one Greek remark, and one that's French. And <laughs> and I I think some of the folks at the World Economic Forum may not want to mingle too much with base canile and vulgar plebs and the hoi polloi. <laughs> <laughs> and then another Jason on Facebook writes, I'm glad Jimmy was able to clear some of that up for me, but just a quick comment on industry 4.0. I work in the engineering field where automation is growing, mainly because young people are no longer being steered towards skilled manufacturing positions. At Boeing, for example, they're facing severe difficulties training the next generation of workers, and this trend can be observed across the manufacturing world. It isn't some evil plan to take workers' jobs away, but is rather a solution to the already existing problem of young people no longer entering the skilled trades. And that is a problem. There's been a push in America for the last generation or two to mainline everybody through liberal arts programs in college. And and that has an effect elsewhere. It also devalues liberal arts degrees. If everybody has one, it's going to be hard to get a job based on that set of skills. And there there really needs to be a rebalancing of helping young people find the skills for the jobs that are out there. So everyone's not trying to compete for exactly the same set of skills. The TV presenter Mike Rowe has been big in pushing the skilled trades as, as opposed to sending everyone to college. So that's, uh -huh. uh, that's really been great. Philip sent an email and he said, on the topic of America being about 40% government sector and 60% private, an important consideration is who owns and controls the means of production. However, I don't think that's really a fair way of assessing the balance we have. Socialism is typically defined as government ownership of the means of production. But there's another form of socialism where government merely has control of the means of production through regulations, incentives, and laws. While you're right that percentage you gave is complete socialism, the rest is not really completely private. It's mostly privatized profits. The government always gets their cut. And it has a large amount of government control through regulations, incentives, and laws. So the remaining 60% is not really capitalist in the free market sense. 
Thanks for what you do and keep the great content coming. Thank you, Philip. I agree that the 40-60 ratio doesn't tell the whole story. I just wanted to use it as uh, one kind of rough measure, but obviously there's more to be said and that doesn't capture the whole reality. I think a lot of people would be surprised to learn that 40% of our economy is eaten up by the government, you know, that it's in control of 40% of it and only a little more than half of it is under private control. So uh, that statistic alone is frightening enough, but I agree the real if there were a quantifiable way to measure it more precisely, it would be even more frightening. Brooke Kennel writes on YouTube, Uber rich people getting together to discuss their vision for the world's future always gives me icky vibes, regardless of what I think about their specific plans. That said, I do think it would be nice if the pandemic changed some aspects of our culture as long as it happens organically. My husband and I have both been approved to work and teach remotely, and it has given us the opportunity to move closer to my parents and to the specialist OBGYN working with me. Our current work culture dates from the Industrial Revolution is not always healthy for our stress levels or family life. Obviously, there are some people who cannot do their jobs remotely, but I think it would be better if more people had the option. And I agree. I think that a lot of office culture in the 20th century was unnecessarily restrictive and if you can get your work done and you don't have to polish a desk chair with your butt in a, in a particular office, that's totally fine. The important thing from a business perspective is that the work gets done. And so I think that having more people having the flexibility to work from home and so forth is a good thing. Cody writes on YouTube, I think people colloquially use the term conspiracy theory as an outlandish theory of a group of people doing or covering up something nefarious rather than its strict legal definition. Just like how people colloquially use the term murder as someone unjustly killing another instead of its strict legal definition, someone killing another human being with malicious aforethought. Or it could have just been defined the way Oxford Dictionary does it, a belief that some covert but influential organization is responsible for a circumstance or event. Thank you, Cody. I recognize that, it, you know, terms can be used in different senses, including the term conspiracy theory. One of my concerns is that the term conspiracy is being heavily devalued by giving it broader usages and specifically by giving it mocking uses. You can, you know, when the term conspiracy theory gets used, it's almost always dismissive. And that's going to taint the word conspiracy itself. If if conspiracy theories are to be dismissed, then anything that proposes a conspiracy is likely to be dismissed. But conspiracies are real. That's why we have laws against them. And so my personal preference is to use the term conspiracy in a way that is more objectively verifiable and doesn't just mean people doing something I think is bad. Detective Holmes on YouTube comments, Corporate happy talk baffle gab. I'm going to use that one. Thank you. I It seemed in a, a uniquely appropriate expression for what some <laughs> of the World Economic Forum's statements were. <laughs> All right. So, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? Since we're talking about the COVID vaccines in this episode, we have an infection theme. First, you know, some people now, whenever anyone makes a claim of something dramatic, like, oh, there's going to be a chip implanted in you with this vaccine. I want to say, OK, so what's your evidence? And well, one group put up a diagram, a schematic 
of a chip that they claimed would be used in the COVID vaccine. And they put it up and said, here's here's the schematic. Well, it turns out that the alleged COVID chip schematic actually is a schematic for a boss metal zone guitar pedal. And the people <laughs> from the metal zone guitar manufacturing people said, oh, wait, that's just the schematic of one of our pedals. <laughs> so um, it's a it's a good lesson of don't trust everything you see on the Internet, but we'll have a link to that story so you can see the schematic for yourself, as well as a Boss Metal Zone guitar pedal. The second thing we have since, it, you know, we want to prevent infections is the White House in the waning days of the Trump administration announced a planetary protection strategy. So this is kind of like Prime Directive 1.0. It involves trying to protect other planets here in the solar system from infection with Earth organisms and also protecting us here on Earth from organisms from other bodies in the solar system. Okay. Uh, that'll become more important as people are trying to settle other parts of yes. the solar system. All right. So that'll do it for us this time. Let us know. What are your theories about the Mark of the Beast? What did you think about this topic? You can let us know by commenting online at sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page. You can send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next Friday is a fifth Friday, so we'll be doing weird questions. And this time we'll be talking about questions like, does baby Yoda need to fast? Do AIs have souls? Is the prime directive ethically defensible? And should we destroy vampires? Then the week after that, we'll be back to consider another mystery. This time it will be when were the four gospels written? Are they late accounts that can't be trusted or were they written early and were they based on eyewitness testimony? This is a fascinating detective story and we'll see what the evidence has to say. All right. So you can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>